ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week I'm continuing to wind down the wild year we've had in both ETFs and the financial markets and also look ahead to next year. Joining me will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. This should be fun. He's going to give us a rundown of the five most read stories on their websites in 2021, both ETF Trends and ETF Database. And not only that, he also has the five most popular ETFs in terms of which ETFs investors were searching for this year. So we'll go through those. And then as a uh, holiday bonus, I'm actually going to flip the script on Tom. I have the three most downloaded ETF Prime podcasts. So I'm going to tee those up and uh, make Tom give us some color commentary like he likes me to do with his data. So we'll start there this week. I'll then be joined by one of my favorite ETF experts, Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research at Morningstar. I always feel like Ben takes a very pragmatic and rational approach to ETFs. He doesn't seem to get caught up in all of the sideshow stories like I do with things like Bitcoin ETFs. He just keeps a very level head and focuses on the bigger picture. And he's going to recap the year in ETFs and also give us his ETF predictions for 2022. And I do want to mention that if you feel like you've already heard this the past two weeks with CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth and ETF Trends' Dave Nodig, I promise you I'm taking a different approach with Ben. Now, there are a few big stories I do want to get his take on, but we're going to venture down some unbeaten paths as well, some different topics than what I cover with Todd and Dave. I, I think you'll really enjoy this. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Michael Guyad, Portfolio Manager at Toroso Investments. Michael also publishes the Lead Lag Report, which is a popular daily market newsletter. And he's Portfolio Manager on two unique ETFs, the ATAC U.S. Rotation ETF and the ATAC Credit Rotation ETF. These both rely on what I think are really interesting market signals to determine whether to go risk on or risk off in both stocks and bonds. So we'll discuss those. And then I'm just telling you now, Michael is an excellent resource on the financial markets. He has some very strong, high conviction views. And he's going to get last crack on this podcast to close out the year with a market recap and offer a few thoughts on what's ahead in 2022. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick things off with ETF Trends, Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, 
the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me. How have you been? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm doing fantastic. It's a uh, fight to the finisher at the end of the year, trying to get everything done. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to stay warm up here, too. It's uh, 13, a balmy 13 degrees in sunny Edmonton, Alberta. So uh, stand, stand warm and, and uh, trying to get a lot done before the end of the year. I'm, I'm really excited to get, get caught up, Nate. All right, so we are going to look at the top five stories on ETF Trends and ETF Database this year. In uh, time, you know, I always like to build a little suspense. So let's do this in reverse order, starting with uh, number five. And just to be clear, what's the methodology here? Is it total page clicks? Yeah, it's engagements by advisors, Nate. So it's uh, we have the ability to look at advisor traffic versus other traffic. So these are specifically financial advisors and what content they're engaging in on the article level across all of the articles published on ETF Trends and ETF Database for January 1st through yesterday, 2021. All right, so let's walk through these. Uh, give us number five. Sure. So, so, Nate, who doesn't love a good Tesla take? So the article was titled Financial Analysts Jumping on Tesla. And so obviously the nature of, uh, you know, Elon Musk being somewhat polar rising in the broader financial world, but also Tesla just being one of the largest stories in general and, and a, a massive, um, you know, run that the stock has had over the, the last number of years. And that ties really nicely into one of the biggest stories within the world of ETFs, as we all know and love, and, and also somewhat of a controversial person and, and, and firm, um, you know, for their bold nature and, and ARK Invest, you know, coming out and owning a big chunk of Tesla it's the largest holding in their flagship fund, ARKK. It's a little over 7%. And obviously in 2020, that, that was just absolutely, that fund was absolutely on fire. Um, and what's really interesting is that there was a little bit, bit of a divergence here is that throughout 2021, Tesla has performed quite well, whereas some of the other names, and obviously 93% of the fund is not Tesla, hasn't performed quite as well, specifically in the back half of the year. So uh, the advisor community is, continues to look at what the folks at ARK Invest are doing, uh, thinking about how they're approaching their allocations. And, and obviously, Tesla is a great gateway to have the conversation about what might be under the hood of the rest of the ARKK holdings. Yeah, that's what jumps out to me. I mean, the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, as you mentioned, Tesla is the largest holding. I think it's close to 10% right now. And so I'm guessing you had advisors just in conducting due diligence are, were coming across this article. I, I have to mention... You know, last year when Kathy Wood and ARC were on their tremendous run performance-wise, there was a lot of chirping out there that the performance was solely driven by Tesla, right? ARC's performance is all Tesla. Uh, Kathy Wood's just riding that. And I, I think it should be noted that Tesla, as you indicated, is performing very well this year. ARC ETFs are not. Now, I'm sure Kathy would like the ARC ETFs to be performing better, but my point here is that clearly the performance is not all Tesla-driven. So I think in, in 2021, we had that narrative die. There's been a lot of uh, myths and narratives that have, have gone to the graveyard this year. I think that's one. Uh, something else that I, I looked at this article, um, Tom, that was interesting to me is that there's an analyst who, who in this article said Tesla could go to $1,071 a share and at the time, Tesla was around $740 a share. That's a pretty decent call. Now, you know, ARC spiked all the way up to around $1,225. It's back around $900 now, but still up, you know, fairly significantly from when that call was made. Uh, but again, hasn't really uh, helped ARC. One other thing that I have to bring up, just because um, I saw this all weekend long. D did you see these, uh, th this research reporter this blog post that Kathy Wood put out on I believe Friday evening yeah uh, yeah about where you know where the growth rate over the next five years is, is that the one yeah and you know what, what's interesting to me I follow I, I we probably follow follow a lot of the same people on Twitter but it's amazing to me how many people were retweeting this quote tweeting this replying to it a lot with with fairly disparaging remarks and I think what everybody's missing here is just how effective arc is at marketing. This comes down to marketing. I couldn't believe it. I mean, you have 
all sorts of competing fund managers and, and other competitors, people who are trying to, to, uh, to, to bring on new clients and assets, all commenting and retweeting this thing. And that's exactly what ARC wants. I think ARC has everybody wrapped around their finger. I, I'm enjoying it. I don't think they're getting enough credit for their marketing prowess. I don't know if you agree with that. And we, we can talk about, you know, how... Um, you know, the, the research itself and, and, and whether that there's there's enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to come up with the words here. Um, substance to it. We can certainly have that debate. But ARC has this marketing engine built. I, I looked yesterday. I mean, Bloomberg had an article on this research that went out. Barron's. It, it's all over the place. I, I think that's exactly what ARC is looking for. Well, yeah, I think the other part of that, Nate, is that ARC has done and been very um, the way in which they've approached their research and, and bringing in voices and critical voices and voices of support and being open source in nature, I think that they're uh, always looking to provoke a conversation that pushes, um, you know, an intellectual frontier. And, and they're also, you know, pretty honest with the fact that they may be right in some instances and they may not be. And, and more smart people looking at research and debating it and and, and that, that's going to do nothing but good in terms of where the ultimate conversation goes. And I think that that's, um, you know, a testament to how they put some things out there that can be provocative and ultimately drive a conversation that, that hopefully pushes everyone forward to a better understanding of the underlying thesis, be it right, wrong, or, or uh, indifferent. And so that's, um, you know, I, I think you're right to say that they're, they're provocative in nature and they're looking to drive a conversation. And, and they're very good at doing that. Yeah, I just love the fact that all of ARC's competitors are out there retweeting this thing and, and talking about it, getting it in front of new prospective clients. I, ju I just love that element. All right, we're, we're getting off topic here. Give us the other stories. What was number four? Sure, number four, Nate, it was an interesting one. And and so this was a this was a story written all the way back to 2014. And I want to unpack it a little bit because I, I do think it's important as it ties to one of the most... Um, uh, interesting things that's on top of the minds of advisors in, in 2021. And so what this story does, it was, it was called History of the S&P 500. And what it does, what it does in, in a visual format is it goes back all the way to 1980 and looks at the top 10 components of the S&P and looks at their respective market cap as of that year and then sums them together. And so you can look at how that changes over time and it goes all the way through 2014 and so again this this piece was written as a as an educational piece looking at 25 years of data or sorry 35 35 years of data to look at how the composition has changed and what's fascinating is that since then um, the composition has done nothing but continue to change and so as of today you know you've got Apple Alphabet Microsoft Amazon Facebook comprising about 23 percent of the capitalization of the S&P and, and if you go back to this article, Nate, you'll find this interesting. The entire top 10, the capitalization of the top 10 components of the S&P in, in 2013 was just over $3 trillion. And so obviously we know that there's a, you know, kind of a, a, almost a ticker on CNBC as to when the, the next company, likely Apple, is going to crest that $3 trillion mark. But it just speaks to the fact that one of the things that's driven this market, especially recently, are those big names, and we're now pretty heavily overweight and concentrated on the top, top end of these major market indices, who has a, have a passive bent and are are kind of riding the wave of, of some of these um, you know stocks that have just performed phenomenally. And it's interesting to look and kind of bring the lens up a little bit and drill into how that played out in the 1980s, 1990s, and then even into the 2000s. So. Advisors doing their research, opening up the hood, and trying to look, get some historical context to how they should think about this market, how they should think about the the capitalization and the weighting of some of these, you know, somewhat top-heavy, um, you know, uh, indices, specifically the S and P. Yeah, I'll just add a couple of things here. First of all, it is a neat tool. This is interactive, so if you go and you click on the year, it'll then pull up the top ten components in the S&P 500. But again, I think I think you you absolutely hit it here in that I think advisors are looking at the top heaviness of the S&P 500 today and they want some context on that. They're going back and saying, okay, what did this look like in 2010? What did this, this look like in 1990? How, how different is that? And that that's why I think this showed up in the, uh, the most popular stories. I'll also add, 
I think that uh, ETF database, just a suggestion, I think you need to bring this chart all the way to 2021, or maybe you already have that in the works. I, I love this tool. I think this is, it's, it's just so easy to use. Nate, it's in, it's in the works and absolutely couldn't agree more. And, and so as we're going into the end of the year, we want to bring this up to date. And, and clearly advisors are, are looking for this type of information on an ongoing basis. So for us to bridge that gap, I think it, it'll be a great way for us to uh, deliver some value as we try to based on what advisors are looking at. All right. Give us the, uh, the next story here, Tom. Sure. So this one um, speaks to another sort of, you know, mega theme, I would suggest in 2021. And it touches on Two, two of them, in fact, and the, the title of the article is not just growth, ESG can ride the pivot to value. So it, it touches on the fact that, um, well, first of all, you know, the way in which a lot of managers and asset managers approach ESG and the composition and the methodology, there can be some pretty big um, deviations as to how, how they approach that based on the weightings. And then it looked at the historical performance and, and some of those ESG methodologies had a, a bit of an overweighting to growth, but there are some strategies that, uh, as we look at the valuations of the market in general, may work well in more of a value-oriented run if or when we have that. And so I, I think that it's really interesting because as we look at the, uh, you know, the rise of ESG, uh, you know, in general and, and the, the amount of assets that have flowed there and the amount of funds that are being created there, uh, it's just an, it just speaks to how advisors are trying to wrap their head around what their exposures look like and then ultimately how they're going to perform. And so, Nate, that's something that, that is, you know, is time-tested that we talk about all the time. Advisors need to communicate their strategy and communicate to their clients in certain market environments, is a fund going to do what they want it to do? And so within the world of ESG, they need to be able to articulate is this fund going to perform in, you know, a go-go growth market? Is it going to underperform in that market? What if there is a rotation into more of a, a, a leadership from some of these quote-unquote value names? And what's that fund going to do? So I think that that's something that advisors, especially as they look to reposition portfolios into 2022, are going to have to have really crisp answers towards. And, and I think that this is going to be an ongoing area that they're going to want to get education and then ultimately disseminate that messaging to their clients. Yeah, I mean, my quick take on this one is that, again, the narrative that's out there is that ESG tends to rely on these growthy tech names. That If you look at the composition of a lot of the more popular ESG indexes that are out there, they are tech heavy. And so if you go back to the first quarter of this year, of course, value was outperforming. And so from a due diligence perspective, my guess is advisors and investors were looking under the hood to see, okay, what do ESG funds actually hold and what type of value exposure do they have? So that one makes sense to me. Um, All right, let's keep moving along here. Number two, what was the second most popular story this year? Second most popular story, Nate, is the title was what's hotter than the QQQ ETF, the QQQJ ETF. So as we know, Invesco launched uh, the NASDAQ Next Gen. 100 ETF back in October of 2020, and frankly, it's been one of the most successful launches in, in the past, you know, little little bit over a year. And what they've done is they've looked beyond, um, you know, the hundred largest non-financial stocks listed on the Nasdaq into the next 100 largest stocks listed in the Nasdaq. So no overlap um, from a holdings perspective of the of, of the queues, and it's giving advisors, you know, exposure to names like you know Roku. Datadog, Seagate Technologies, ultimately with the idea that, you know, the QQQ has had unbelievable performance, and we touched on this in one of the previous articles, the last five years, up, you know, well north of 200% in five years, you know, just a, a phenomenal kegger. But as investors and advisors look to the next five years, who's going to drive that growth? Who are the next stalwarts of, of the growth movement? And Invesco trying to bottle a little bit of that up, it, you know, using Using a, a strategy that's worked in the past, and ultimately, it's a fund that you know has, has garnered already over a billion dollars worth of assets. And so, I think that um, you know it, it's interesting for a number of reasons. Yeah, and I think there's an arc tie in here, as I think you were alluding to, in that advisors have the core of their portfolio pretty well set. I, I think a big theme this year, we've continued to see flows into the core portfolio 
building blocks from, from providers like Vanguard and iShares. And so investors are looking at how can they get a little bit of juice around the edges, sort of this core and explore and getting a little more creative in that explore portion. And something like QQJ, which is going further down the, the cap spectrum, getting into some mid-cap stocks and, and some into some companies that may ultimately graduate and find their way into the NASDAQ 100. These are uh, companies that are looking to disrupt the sectors they're in. So th this makes sense to me just in that context. Um, okay, give us the number one story of 2021 on ETF Trends and ETF Database. Sure. Four new funds, Fidelity is shaking up active ETF. So I, I think, Nate, the, the thing to hone in on here is the story of active and the rise of active. So uh, the data that we have, you know, almost 240, 236 to be precise, active ETFs launched in 2021, um, you know, gathering over uh, $80 billion, you know, new participants coming into the market, you know, companies like T. Rowe Price, and then also, you know, folks who've been in and around the ETF space for a long time, adding to their lineup, folks like Fidelity. I think, um, you know, the, the, the narrative around and, and the fact of, just how well traditional cap-weighted, you know, passive indices have performed the last 10 years, advisors are really challenging whether that's going to be the case in the future. And the asset management community is delivering to them a whole bunch of new ways in which they can get exposure that take different bents on traditional passively weighted indices. So um, I, I think that this is probably one of the biggest stories and one of the things that's most top of mind to the advisor community. And I think that this, uh, the engagement on this article is emblematic of the, the fact that advisors are drilling into that active space. Like you said, even looking at some of their, their core exposures that may be, may be passive and seeing if there's any uh, um, opportunity to tweak those um, as they go forward and as, as we go forward into what may be a, continue to be a challenging market into 2022. I think that's well said. And I'm actually going to talk a, a little bit about this with Morningstar's Ben Johnson. But you look at the launches this year, there were more active ETFs launched than passive. And I think that speaks to the fact that asset managers are looking to meet investors um, in the, with the wrapper that investors are demanding, which is the ETF wrapper. And so I think we'll continue to see this. You look at the players who have been ramping up their ETF businesses this year, the American Centuries and the Nuveens, T. Rowe Price, Janice Henderson, all of these traditional active managers really getting aggressive with their ETF businesses. We have Capital Group coming into the market in the first part of next year. So I, I think you're right. This is going to continue to be a, a big story. All right, we're running a little short on time. Let's do this. Let's go quickly through the top five ETF search at ETF Trends and ETF Database. And then I do want to give you the top three ETF Prime podcast and get your quick take. I, I have to turn the tables on you a little bit. So, so quickly here, give us the top five ETFs searched on the platform this year. Sure, Nate, I'll, and I'll rattle through these. So QQQ, the Invesco QQQ Trust, BLOK, the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, uh, ARKK, the flagship ARC Innovation ETF. Uh, wouldn't be a list if we didn't have SPY, the Spider S&P 500 ETF Trust, and then also another product from ARC, the Next Generation Internet ETF, ARKW. Top five ETFs searched on the ETF Trends and Database platform in 2021. And the comment I'll make on those is if you look at SPY and QQQ, obviously those are used, again, as core portfolio exposure. And then I think the other three, ARKW, ARKK, and BLOK, these are uh, thematic ETFs that are used in that explore part of the portfolio. So that makes sense to me. It's interesting. You know, ARK was the uh, ETF story of the year last year, but they're still holding strong this year. Uh, advisors are... are you know, doing research and, and seeking these ETFs out. I think pretty interesting. Of course, BLOK, what, what can we say? I mean, Bitcoin ETFs were a big story this year, and certainly the proliferation of blockchain ETFs, BLOK, BLOK being the largest. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. No, Nate, that's exactly right. Like, I think a lot of the, um, the ticker engagement and the article engagement, some of the things that we touched on in terms of the themes that are woven through where advisors are looking, they manifest both in the articles and the tickers. But I'm glad that you called out BLOK because that's something that we've talked about quite a bit. And as, as the crypto market and, and even now the, the rebrand there of, of Web3 and where we're going, the advisor community is really continuing to drill in there. And I think we're going to continue to see some product innovation that, that is going to drive engagement in that regard. So um, some really interesting stuff as, as we come to the end of the year. 
All right, before I let you go, uh, as I've noted, this has been a very special year on the podcast. Obviously, we put together this new partnership between ETF Trends and ETF Prime earlier in the summer. I, I really feel like this has been such a value add to listeners hearing from people like yourself, Tom Lydon, Dave Nottig, Laura Krigger. So I do want to thank you for that, uh, Tom. And and so as as I, I, I was really excited to to try to turn the tables on you because I feel like you give me data and have me offer color commentary every every time you join me. And so I want to have you do that now. And so I've compiled our most downloaded podcast since the partnership began. I'm going to give you the top three and you can give me your take. So number three is from July. I would say this one is no surprise at all. Investing legend Burton Malkiel on ESG, meme stocks, crypto, and more. I think anytime Burton Malkiel talks, people are going to listen, right? And also on that podcast was Laura Krieger covering what else? ESG, hot topic. And then Avantis consultant Sunil Wahal, uh, he went in-depth on their investment process. The second most popular ETF prime featured our good friend Eric Balchunas from over at Bloomberg, this was in uh, early August. Eric and I covered everything from Bitcoin ETFs to ARK. We even talked alternative music. Uh, also on this podcast was Tom Lydon and then uh, Innovator ETFs founder Bruce Vaughn, who uh, discussed defined outcome ETFs. So pretty good lineup. I think Balchunas always draws a crowd. And then number one, drumroll. I've got to be honest, this surprised me. It's from September 21st. Death of the 6040 portfolio. And guess what? You were actually on that one. And, and I promise you, I did not cherry pick this. It also featured uh, Pragmatic Capital's Colin Roche and Pacer ETF Sean O'Hara. But, you, you know, as I thought about this time, and we only have about a minute left here, I, I do think that 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 most popular podcast, it really speaks to one of the primary concerns of investors right now, which is one that we've covered all year long, this challenge of fixed income. Exactly, Nate. Well, and just to go back one step, you know, we couldn't be more thrilled about the partnership, and I think we're just getting started. So I know I can speak for the entire ETF Trends and Database team that we're we're so happy to be on this journey with you and to educate uh, the audience that you've built over many years and get some cross uh, pollination there. Um, but yeah, to the point of the sixty forty, all of the kind of major themes: uh, inflation, valuation. All these things um, and, and how you approach that portfolio construction, I think that's probably speaking to why advisors were so engaged in that part of it and how they're going to position their portfolio into 2022. Well, Tom, again, it's been a, a fun year. Really looking forward to 2022. And I hope you and your family enjoy the uh, holidays. Thank you for joining me. You too, Nate. Thanks so much for having me. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research at Morningstar. Of course, Morningstar is a leading independent provider of investment research, ratings, tools, and simply put, Ben covers ETFs as closely and as well as anyone. He's now on the line with me from Chicago. Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Nate, so great to be back. Uh, excited to put an exclamation point on the end of a year that has been full of exclamation points in the, the ETF space with you. 
You know, I feel like uh, we've established a nice little holiday tradition here. I was looking back. You've now joined me, believe it or not, four straight years to recap ETFs and look ahead to the new year. Uh, how's everything been? I, I got to tell you, I was watching the Bears last night. That was a painful experience. <laughs> I, 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 I was thinking of you, and I was thinking of this conversation during that just atrocious <laughs> game, Nate. Thinking back to a time where I was so bold as to bet $100 on the Bears winning the Super Bowl a few years ago. Yeah, the, the Cubs were good when we started doing this, so it's, it's, it's amazing how long this, this tradition has, has gone on. I look forward to many years in the, the future, and, and hopefully my favorite sports teams will only get better. I think they can only get better at this point. I would agree, although I was impressed with the defense, but yes, the offense has some, some work to do. All right, so look, you are either in a very uh, unenviable position because you have to follow CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth and ETF Trends Dave Nodick, who joined me uh, the last two weeks to offer their recaps, or you're in a prime position, right? Because you already know their hot takes, and maybe you can you can ride on those coattails. I guess we'll see. But, you, you know, in all seriousness, Ben, I just like to get a, a nice cross-section of opinions on this stuff. I, as you were saying, I feel like so much has happened in ETFs, and everyone has their own unique take. Now, I do think the challenge this year is the top stories, I, I think, are pretty clear-cut, right? I know Dave... Todd and I all agree on what those were. So I thought, actually, let's start there. Those three stories were the first Bitcoin futures ETFs launching. The record ETF flows now around, what, $900 billion for the year, which is just unbelievable. And then the third story is mutual fund to ETF conversions. I'm assuming you agree those are the top three stories? Yeah, I would agree. And, and Todd and Dave, as always, are, are tough acts to follow. So I, I have the, the advantage of having them shown their cards already. And, and I would largely agree with them. And I, I think bigger picture, what we're seeing is that, you know, e ETFs as, as a category are becoming in increasingly porous. And what more and more investors are realizing, what more and more asset managers are realizing, is this is just a better way to package and distribute investment strategies of all sorts, active, passive, and in between. And send them out into the world, right, to, to their end investors. And it's a better way for investors to consume investment strategies. It's more widely available. It's more cost efficient. It's more tax efficient. It's an overall better deal for investors who get to keep more money for themselves and fork less money over to asset managers and all form of, of intermediaries. So I, I think you know, the overarching trend here, what's driving all of these various Subtrends is exactly that, and you see that at the margin, right? Record new launches thus far this year, 445 at my last count, easily eclipsing the 309 we saw last year. Second year in a row where we've saw new ETF launches outstrip new mutual fund launches, and the first time ever we saw mutual funds turning into ETFs. So I think all, again, pointing back to this idea that the vehicle of choice, the choice of a new generation for consuming investment strategies is the ETF package. Yeah, and I think another indication of that as well, it's not only mutual fund to ETF conversions, but we've seen RIAs now offering their proprietary strategies in an ETF wrapper. We've seen SMA to ETF conversions. Somebody like Cabana comes to mind. So to your point, asset managers of all stripes are trying to figure out how to get um, their investment strategies packaged to investors in the format they want, which is uh, ETFs. I think that's really well said. Um, okay, so I mentioned at the top of the podcast that you and I are going to get into some other ETF stories this week, some different topics than what I've covered the past two weeks. And I, I, I guess first, I'd love to hear your take on ARK Invest in, in Kathy Wood. And Todd and I just did talk a little bit about this. Tom Hendrickson and I just, just briefly hit on it. But I feel like this ties into a theme you've talked about for a long time, just in following you, uh, your work, which is how high-flying funds one year tend to underperform the next year. And ARK's interesting because they were the runaway ETF story of the year in, in 2020, right? Just massive inflows, massive outperformance. And now this year, things have reversed. Significant underperformance. Uh, there have been some outflows recently. By no means a rush to the exits, right? But I do think the will of a lot of ARK investors is being tested. What do you think about the ARK story, uh, you, you know, right now compared to where we were at at this time last year? Definitely. And I, I think it's a reminder of, of something we've known for some time, which is trees don't grow to the sky. 
that there are natural limits when it comes to you know particular managers' ability to deliver the type of returns that Kathy and team have delivered for quite some time now, which have put them in you know, the upper echelons of you know, fund performance going back decades, right? If, if you look at the number of funds, which is tiny, that have produced the type of returns that ARKK and some of the sister funds in that suite have produced, you, know, you see names like Peter Lynch, uh, you know, in, in that hall of records. Um, so little doubt uh, that the performance has been incredible. The trouble is, is that the performance that most investors have experienced in this point has been less so. In fact, many ARK investors are probably underwater because they probably piled on the ship at precisely the wrong time, which is another pattern that we've seen for ages that is as old as time, that investors tend to chase performance. They tend to pile on at precisely the wrong time. Um, and unfortunately, for most investors holding ARKK today, they haven't experienced the type of figures that you've seen Kathy and team produce over the course of the past five-plus years. So it's been interesting to see uh, just how resilient many of those investors have been. Certainly, you would think that um, you know now being 40-plus percent below their all-time high, that you know, some weak hands might have washed out. But uh, all told, what we've seen is that the outflows that have happened to date have, have been actually quite small. So it'll be interesting to see just just how diamond those hands are, or, or if there's some paper hands in 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 the uh, the ranks there uh, within ARKK, and not just ARKK, but a whole host of other high flyers that we saw last year, notably in the clean energy space as well, uh, which similarly have had really bad returns year to date, but similarly have seen. Uh, resiliency among the money that poured in over the course of the past 12 months or so. Yeah, you had a great tweet recently that out of last year's top 10 performing ETFs, nine have negative returns year to date. And some of those, again, fairly substantially negative returns. The one with positive returns is still trailing the S&P by something like 25 points. Uh, But to your point, investors have been pretty resilient in sticking with these funds. We'll see if that lasts. You you know, as I look at the list of high-flying ETFs from last year, they are all thematic ETFs. And again, just from following you on Twitter and reading your research, my sense is you're, I I would say, fairly skeptical on thematic ETFs and the value that they they may provide to investors. Yet, you, you look, I do think one of the bigger ETF stories in 2021 was this continued rise of thematics. And interestingly, both uh, Todd and Dave predicted a continuation of this trend next year, that thematics will continue to grow. What gives you pause around thematic ETFs? Well, I, I think a lot of the work that we do, Nate, is really just to try to help investors to establish base rates. And base rates really just tell you, like, what are the odds if I'm to pick an average thematic fund, that I'm going to get that bet right, that I'm going to be rewarded for allocating to that particular fund. And we do it with thematics. We do it within our semi-annual Morningstar Active Passive Barometer. You name it. We just want to help investors to make better informed decisions. So in thematics in particular, what we see is that the base rates, the odds of getting that bet right are really low because effectively what you're doing is similar to what you might do at a horse track. It's, it's basically a trifecta bet. It's a three-leg bet. You're betting you're going to get three things right. So specifically, you're betting you're going to get the theme right, that that theme you know, is real, that that theme is durable. So, you know, rewind back to 2020, what we saw is that we had three work-from-home themed ETFs that were launched. Well, work-from-home certainly is a bigger part of most of our reality, but it's not quite where we were at and what we were thinking back in the dark days of, of early 2020 when we were all locked down. Uh, fast forward to 2021, and what you've seen this year is a whole host of let's get back out in the world and enjoy ourselves themed ETFs that have been launched, uh, focusing on travel and the cruise industry and restaurants, you name it. So those themes are, are more fleeting and less durable. So that's leg one. Like two is that you've got to get the stocks right. So do these stocks, do these companies actually derive real economic profit from whatever that activity is, be it you know, blockchain, be it cannabis, be it psychedelics, be it you know, ag, be it outer space, you name it. What 
you see is oftentimes these portfolios feature a lot of companies that may have a sideline or be very tangential to whatever that theme is. So the stocks might not be right. That's leg two. And then leg three, which is all important, is is the price right? Like, I'm going to channel my inner Bob Barker here. If the price is not right, if valuations already reflect the market's enthusiasm around that theme and you're buying then, you're probably too late, right? You know, the old adage, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news. Well, if anything, oftentimes what we've seen in the data to date is that you might be best served to sell short the thematic ETF and certainly the third one that's trying to capitalize on the same theme as two others that have been launched previously. So, yes, it's important to, I think, approach this space with a healthy degree of skepticism. I think that around the margins, they can add value in a diversified portfolio, if for no other reason than to kind of scratch your itch to participate, to speculate, to invest in whatever the next hot thing might be. And that next hot thing is going to continue to change over time. Really, the only limitations on the growth of this space are product managers' imaginations. And what we've seen over time, too, is that a lot of the same ideas get recycled. So ages ago, my colleague Dan Culleton wrote a piece on a Gen X-themed mutual fund. You fast forward to just a few weeks ago, and we've seen the first ever uh, what is it, Gen Z? I can't keep track now, Nate. Um, <laughs> Gen Z themed ETF that's been launched. So um, just you know, know what you're getting yourself into when it comes to thematics. Is I I think my my headline there for investors. Well, you had another great uh, tweet, which I want to reference here, which by the way, for uh, listeners, if you're not already following Bet on Twitter, you're, you're doing it wrong. You should be. He's at MSTAR ETF US. But the, the tweet was of the 153 U.S. listed thematic ETFs that were launched prior to December 31st, 2020, 23% outperformed VTI, which is the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, for the year to date through November. The median excess return of those 23 was 7.1%. Uh, but the median excess return of the remaining 85% that have lagged was minus 16.1%. So I, I think to your point, that, that says something. The one counter that I will have to, to what you've said, and you may have heard me talk about this before, I can tell you that from an investor behavior standpoint, one of the things that I have found is that most investors do have some semblance of a gambler. They, they want it for better or worse. People want to have a little bit of, uh, you know, a bet out there. And what we have found is that if you allocate, say, three to five percent of a portfolio to thematic ETFs, that that actually helps keep the investor uh, invested in that boring part of the, uh, the the rest of the portfolio, that other 95 percent globally diversified, you know, watching grass grow, uh, uh, part of the right. portfolio. So I, I do think there's something behaviorally there. Now, I've also seen you say something along the lines of, well, is there any research to back back that up, right? And I and no, I, that, that I've seen. I haven't seen academic research, but I can t- tell you anecdotally that we've seen that work behaviorally with clients. No, and I, I agree with that, Nate. In you know, full disclosure, that's something I, I do myself. Um, you know, I'm for example, the, the proud owner of 0.008 Bitcoin. So I get that. And I, I think there is real value in just having kind of that, that pressure release valve, if you will, and a, a distinct account where you say, this is my pot of funny money, um, where I'm going to do things that, you know, just help me learn, grow, challenge my assumptions as an investor. And maybe I make some money, maybe I don't. But what I definitely don't do is allow what I do there to affect the remainder of my portfolio. So fully on board on on that front. All right. We're running a little short on time. So let's go rapid fire here. I want to close out 2021 and then get some quick predictions from you for uh, for next year. So um, let's get a few of your favorites from this year. And I, I guess let's start. Give me your favorite new ETF this year with one caveat. You can't pick the two ETFs you recently wrote about, which were the Schwab International <laughs> Dividend ETF, SCHY, and the Dimensional Core Fixed Income ETF, DFCF. Give me something else. Yeah, so one of those would be VUSB. So that's the Vanguard Ultra Short Bond ETF. This is a really a staple you know, core player in any portfolio. Um, super solid firm, super solid portfolio construction, super low fee. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to become an option, I think, for a lot of investors who are looking for a, a cash alternative. The other two I would throw out there are a pair of new funds, uh, value funds from Avantis. So one is 
their international large cap value ETF, the other one, their emerging market value ETF. So that's ABID and ABES. Uh, Avantis, you know, helmed by uh, Eduardo Repetto, former co-CEO of Dimensional Fund Advisors, who's brought over a solid team from uh, his, his former firm, uh, really stood up a, a very interesting suite of ETFs that leverage the wisdom of the markets, but also bet against the markets in a very sensible way, charge very low fees. So for people who think that value looks cheap generally and value outside the U.S. looks especially cheap, I think these are, are a pair of really interesting funds. All right. Your favorite new ETF ticker symbol of 2021. Oh, my gosh, Nate. So, so hard. You sent this question to me. I'm running down the list. I'm looking at Bob, Eats, FOMO, OOTO, Kong, Tiny, Yummy. Um, I, I have to pick a pair, uh, and they speak to uh, you know where I come from, the, the city of Chicago. So my two favorite new ETF tickers are WNDI, Windy. Uh, <laughs> I hail from the Windy City and Cubs um, because you know I'm I'm a diehard Cubs fan, uh, despite the fact that the Cubs have, have been dying pretty hard ever since. Uh, you know the World Series victory seems like a, a distant memory at this point. So those those are my two favorites. Um, but obviously, I, I'm very biased in that respect. I'll, I'll go meta just because of everything around the Facebook brand switch. <laughs> uh, they, they hit that one perfectly. You know, good ticker anyways for what they're doing, but certainly the Facebook uh, situation helped. Okay, uh, quickly here, let's get to your 2022 ETF predictions. And Ben, I know you're not a big fan uh, of predictions, but like I told Dave, you cover the space as closely as anyone, so you have to give us something here. Uh, what do you have for us? <laughs> Well, Nate, I'd like to think I'm your most reliable sort of prognosticator in that respect if for no other reason than my predictions are so dang boring. Um, you know, more of the same. Uh, most of the money is going to go to things that are dirt cheap, broad-based, uh, you know, supremely tax-efficient trade like water, to borrow a, a term from my good buddy Matt Hoogan. Um, you know, I, that's going to continue to be the case. At the margin, you're going to continue to see a lot of dynamism. You've already got teed up the first ETFs from some longtime holdouts like Capital Group. Um, so it'll be interesting. And, and I think what you're ultimately seeing is just the evolution of the asset management industry and the direction of different forms of delivery, be it an ETF, be it a CIT, be it direct indexing, which is something that every investor, big, small, and in between, can celebrate because it's more efficient, means more money in our pockets that's going to compound to our benefit. Um, and, and that's something I think we can all go into the, the new year and years beyond looking forward to. In terms of ETF flows moving forward, you know, last year we had over $500 billion. Right now we have 900 bill this year. We'll, we'll see where we end the year. And certainly in both of those years, the financial markets have, have absolutely been a tailwind. But do you feel like these types of flows are the new normal now? In other words, you know, if you go back to years prior, maybe we had 300 bill or 400 bill. Are, are these big numbers, are these the new normal? Yeah, difficult to say. I, if, if you had asked me this time last year, you know, will we see you know nine hundred billion or so in flows? I I would have balked, right? I, like, how how would that even happen? Like, is the S and P up, you know, one hundred fifty percent? Like, what conditions would would drive that? But I think it's only natural that as every incremental dollar has a preference for this new vehicle, as this new vehicle ultimately houses every type of investment strategy you can imagine. Again, active, passive, in between that most of the new money is going to continue to flow into you know, ETFs and other non-mutual fund vehicles. Um, so new normal, difficult to say. If I had to you know, put a, a stake down in the sand, I would say, if anything, flows will probably decelerate mm -hmm. somewhat relative to 2021 and 2022. But ultimately, that really is going to depend on what's going on in the market, in my mind. And that's anybody's guess. Well, Ben, always appreciate your uh, your insight. Always fun chatting. Hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you for joining me. You too, Nate. Thanks for having me. That was Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research at Morningstar. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. 
The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. I'm now joined by Toroso Investments' Michael Gayad. He's portfolio manager on the ATAC Rotation Fund, a mutual fund. He also manages two ETFs, the ATAC U.S. Rotation ETF, ticker ROROO, RORO, and the ATAC Credit Rotation ETF, JOJO, JOJO. And I should also mention that Michael is behind the Lead Lag Report, which offers daily market insights and data. You can find that at leadlagreport.com. Michael's now on the line with me from New York. Michael, great finally having you on the podcast. No, I appreciate it, Nate. I feel like uh, as we come up on Christmas here, I should be saying Joe, 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 or row, row, row instead of ho, ho, ho. <laughs> well, how's everything been uh, going over at Toroso? I feel like it's been a little while since I caught up with uh, Venuto and Weiskopf and the uh, the entire team over there. Yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible run the last uh, you know two years, right? I mean, between the uh, amazing success of the blockchain ETF, BLOK, all the work that's being done, through title and then the growth of the ATAC fund family, you know, uh, on 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 my end, I mean, it's been uh, it's been very humbling and very exciting, and also in some ways I think very um, challenging in the sense that, yeah, as you know, when you go through a growth spurt, it's more than just about managing revenue. Now it's about managing more people and and kind of really putting structure in ways that you wouldn't normally think about, right? And I think the firm's done a, a phenomenal job in in doing all that. Well, let's do this. I want to spend a few minutes on your two ETFs because I think with the way these are constructed, they naturally lend themselves to us talking financial markets. And I have a feeling we're going to go on several tangents here. So let's start with the ATAC U.S. Rotation ETF, RORO. Uh, this is unique. It relies on the lumber gold signal. Explain this one for us. Yeah, you know, it's funny. As you know, I have a fairly large following on, on Twitter. And whenever I, I talk about lumber to gold, people inevitably end up saying, well, uh, this is all hocus pocus. Lumber doesn't mean anything. Meanwhile, they're tweeting that from their house, which has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. Um, so so the idea here is, just taking a step back, I'm, I'm known for having put out five different research studies that won five different separate awards going back to 2014. Two Dow Awards uh, from the CMT Association, three NAME Founders Awards, uh, and the 2015 Founders Award winning paper is titled uh, Lumber Worth Its Weight in Gold. Now, all of the, of the papers, not just the Lumber to Gold one, have this sort of underlying common thread. It's this idea that I may not know the exact mile marker that I might crash my car, but I know the conditions that favor an accident. I know when it's raining to slow down, play a risk off. When it's sunny to speed up, play a risk on. And in the context of markets, there are these leading indicators that help identify the conditions under which volatility is likely to rise or fall on a go-forward basis. And it turns out that lumber relative to gold is one of those indicators that to tell. Now, what, what, on the surface, it's kind of a strange concept. Why would lumber and gold, comparing them to each other, tell you anything at all about the stock market? And as I alluded to, the link is really around housing. We know that housing is a leading indicator of the economy. Most people's wealth is in their homes. The average home has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. So it stands to reason that if uh, lumber is doing well, there's all kinds of implications on what it suggests for the housing market, for growth, inflation, credit creation, so on and so forth. Gold, on the other hand, is more of a non-cyclical commodity that tends to do well during risk-off junctures, high-volatility junctures in equities. So you compare lumber to gold, it actually tells you a lot about risk, and what that paper documents is that Usually when lumber is outperforming gold over the last rolling several weeks, you tend to see higher average stock market volatility. When lumber is underperforming gold, you tend to see the opposite. Um, I'm sorry, lower and then higher if lumber is underperforming gold. Now, 
the most interesting thing about the research is that if you were to look at every single major tail event, every single major crash, correction, bear market, you'll see that in pretty much every single major decline, lumber was weak relative to gold in advance of that risk-off event. And it kind of goes to this, again, this, this analogy of, of not knowing the mile marker. The mile marker is the crash, is the real big decline in stocks. If lumber to gold is weak, it suggests housing is going to be weak. It suggests disinflationary pressures are increasing. It suggests credit contraction. All that is the are the conditions under which extreme declines tend to occur afterwards. Uh, and I've essentially created a whole ETF around that concept uh, whereby looking at the behavior of lumber to gold, if lumber is outperforming gold, RORO goes risk on equities. If gold is outperforming lumber, RORO goes risk off treasuries. The key thing, of course, is that you need to have an environment where there's risk off, which I'm sure we can we can you know tease a little bit more. But you know, in years like 2021, where it's seemingly the the stock market, if you define it by just the S&P 500, if that's just very smooth up and to the right, inevitably you'll get whipsaws playing defense, in which case you're quote unquote wrong. You miss on the upside because your expression of risk off is to be totally out of stocks. So it's one of those things which is tricky, right? It's no different than every time you slow down during the storm, you know, the odds overwhelmingly may favor that you don't get into an accident, but you still have to keep slowing down, which means you get to your destination slower. The one time you slow down where it's the true positive, the accident, you actually get to your destination after. So two things right now. This is currently positioned as risk on, correct? Right. As we speak here uh, late December, and that a large, large part of that's because the lumber to gold ratio really spiked uh, on the idiosyncratic aspect of uh, tariffs increasing. So the Biden administration increased uh, or doubled the softwood uh, 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 lumber tariff uh, for imports coming from Canada. So there's a price readjustment that's happening there. And, you know, so there's an element of that which is, again, idiosyncratic to the signal, but as you know, housing still remains quite strong, um, surprises continuously on the upside, and that seems to be another reason for why lumber probably stays elevated. And this holds other ETFs, correct? Right. So it's effectively an ETF of ETFs. So it, it, it's kind of interesting, right, because a lot of the, the narrative is that you cannot time markets, and that's largely true in the sense that if you try to time an ETF and then go cash, oftentimes you fail miserably because cash does not allow you to be wrong and still make money in that false signal and that false positive. If, however, instead of uh, being in cash, you're rotating into a defensive ETF, one that benefits from stock market volatility like treasuries, uh, then you can uh, time your asset class decision rather than time the market. So using ETFs are... are a great way of doing that, and the the turnover on Roro is quite high. I mean, the expected turnover is north of a thousand percent, just to give you a sense. I mean, there's there's really nothing else quite like that that's so active, and it's so active because you'll have a number of signals throughout the year. You don't know which signal is the one that gets ahead of the major decline, so you've got to keep on rotating between now and then. Everything you said regarding lumber makes perfect sense to me, but I'm curious on the gold side. How consistently reliable is a signal? Because I'll tell you from conversations I've had, and actually I discussed this on the uh, the podcast last week when talking gold ETFs, I think many investors would have expected gold to be up this year with the inflation concerns, and you look at interest rates, which have stayed pretty well anchored, so that opportunity cost is, in, is big, but gold's down on the year. So I, I guess, do you trust that gold is sort of reading the room correctly right now? Yeah, so I, I love this discussion because I, I often rant on this. Um, I, I know there's this narrative that gold is an inflation hedge or is a store of value or, or all this stuff. But you know, at the end of the day, I'm a quant, right? And I've done a lot of quant research and looked at a lot of quant research. The, the reality is that gold really doesn't correlate to most, if any, macroeconomic variables, whether it's inflation, GDP, some arguments are there around negative real rates, but then to your point, you've had negative real rates and gold hasn't done very much. So the way to really view gold, the one thing that gold tends to correlate to is in these kind of short-term bursts of equity volatility, gold tends to do fairly well, meaning you tend to see sort of a flight to safety, not just in treasuries and the dollar, but gold as a part of that, that opportunity set. From that perspective, I could argue to you that gold has unequivocally read the room correctly. 
right? Because even though you've had these momentary false signals, the fact that it's, you know, down on the year is suggestive of the idea that there's not really been any sort of persistent risk off in 2021, which certainly has been the case if you just look at the headline averages. All right, Michael, just a, a few minutes left here, and I want to make sure to, to get your just quick view on 2022. But if we move to the ATAC credit rotation ETF, JoJo, this tactically moves in and out of uh, high yield bonds. J- just briefly talk about the signaling here and what the end goal is. So same concept as risk on risk off, but applying it as junk on junk off. It uses instead of lumber to gold, it uses the behavior of utilities uh, relative to the stock market. Why utilities? Because utilities are the most bond-like sector of the stock market. When you see uh, the VIX spike in equities, you also tend to see credit spreads widening. And to the extent that utilities, as I've shown in that 2014 Dow War paper, tell you about volatility, well, if utilities tell you about volatility in stocks, it tells you also about credit spread event potential. No different than lumber to gold. And oftentimes you'll see, again, in advance of major declines, lumber to gold weak at the exact same time utilities relative to the stock market is strong, both giving you the same kind of risk off, be defensive message. So what JoJo does is instead of going risk on equities, risk off treasuries, it goes junk on high yield debt and junk off treasuries. The commonality across both funds is that typically it's expected that both funds would be in treasuries, hopefully when you need it the most. JoJo's got a, a monthly dividend, is meant to try to take advantage of the dislocation that inevitably will happen in the bond market when it occurs by trying to time high yield at the right time. But again, the common, the other part of this real quick is that you need to have some risk off, right? So if, if there's a concern that markets will be more volatile, what I always tell people is that the strongest selling point of my approach and my funds is that I have a chance, which is oddly enough the strangest selling point you could possibly imagine. To basically sell, tell an investor, oh, I have a chance at getting the risk off uh, declining periods correct. But it's also the, the truest one, right, given the nature of the way these signals are so active in themselves, you know, have, have uh, whipsaws. All right. And JoJo is currently risk off, right? Correct. So it's a good example of how there's this kind of confusion in the market. Utilities relative to the stock market are just starting to show some signs of life, which would be your risk off signal against lumber to gold, which is risk on. That probably suggests that the market internally is confused. Now, having said that, I would not be surprised if, you know, in January 2022, lumber to gold starts breaking down meaningfully. Uh, because I think utilities probably have this more right in that, aside from the fact that we have concerns about policy mistakes from the Federal Reserve, the reality is the long end of the Treasury side of things, long-duration long Treasuries, yields have been dropping since mid-March. That's not consistent with the reflation reopening narrative. Neither is the weakness in small caps. Neither is the weakness in emerging markets. So these divergences, which everyone has been you know, remarking on you know, for the last month and a half or so, it's going to get resolved one way or the other. I think it's going to be probably more likely to be resolved through risk off, meaning large caps breaking down to the message of everything else, lumber to gold weakening, utilities staying strong, uh, rather than the opposite, which is small caps playing catch up. Okay, so on that note, about two minutes left here. I'm going to give you last word on this podcast for 2021 as it pertains to the markets. We've covered it all this year. But to to your point, Michael, I mean, uh, the market being confused and this divergence, I saw you had a tweet last week, which uh, I'm going to clean this up for my family-friendly podcast. Uh, You said, quote, navigating the stock market in 2020 was way uh, trucking easier than the stuff that's happened this year. Wildly treacherous environment for bulls and bears alike. I, I mean, is that speaking to your point here, just on this confusion? Yeah, and, and you know, I talked to a lot of advisors. I mean, a lot of people have, have not really done that well. When you look at most uh, uh, proxies for the true market, which is not the six stocks that are driving the S&P 500, most things peaked out in February. So February, emerging markets peaked out. In February, small caps started going sideways. Um, in March, again, Treasury yields started dropping. And when you look at breadth measures, uh, as we speak, roughly, uh, if you look at the NASDAQ composite index, roughly 24% of the NASDAQ, NASDAQ stocks are trading above their respective 200-day moving averages, while the NASDAQ itself is hovering around new highs. That, why does that matter? Because if you don't have strong breadth, it also creates whipsaws and momentum as a factor outside of just the headline averages. So it's been tricky because if anybody was trying to do anything except have exposure to the very big large cap tech, you've inevitably been very disappointed. And if you happen to be managing money for clients, 
everyone, because of the availability heuristic, home bias thinks that the market is the Dow, is 500 stocks in the S&P. In reality, it's much more than that. So it's, it's, you had this kind of stealth bear market, arguably, which, again, is inconsistent with this reopening reflation narrative. That has been very hard. It's very hard to beat the S&P when the S&P is the only game in town, whereas last year, at least you had a risk off. You could have played defense, uh, defense. Last year, when you were in small caps, you had momentum. In emerging markets, you had momentum. This year has been brutal in that it's been so centered around just large cap tech that it was almost impossible to to, to outperform uh, the leader in that sense. Well, I've got to tell you, 2022 is going to be fascinating to watch. To your point, I think we'll, we'll start seeing uh, so, some signs here in the first quarter. But, Michael, excellent insight this week. I'm really glad we were finally able to make this happen. Uh, happy holidays to you and your family. And uh, I, I certainly look forward to connecting again in the new, uh, in the, uh, new year. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. That was Toroso Investments' Michael Guyad. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, it's a a holiday-shortened podcast, but a good one nonetheless. I'll be joined by ETF Trends' Tom Lydon to look ahead to 2022, and also Tuttle Capital's Matt Tuttle will spotlight their ETF, which offers inverse exposure to the ARK Innovation ETF. Should be interesting. Until then, have a great week, everyone. (laughs) 